0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. I'm so excited to be here with Sasha Banks. Sasha is an author of a book that just sold out. It's called America Mine. Sasha, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be a part. Yay. I'm so excited that you're here. I want today to really be about your voice and showing people your vision because as we've been going through the last month of really diving deeper into our individual spiritual awakening, what Spirit has been showing me is a couple of different things, but one is that We feel this heavy energy, right? Of how did I not see before what I am seeing now? Mm -hmm. How have I been blinded my entire life to all that has been in front of me that I have been complacent in? And there's a lot to unpack there. But what Spirit has been showing me is two things. One is in order to go further, we each individually need to do our work, but we also have to have this vision of what we're working towards, what healthy relationships look like, what doing our work looks like, and what the vision looks like that we hold for this beautiful country that we live in and this beautiful world that we live in. And so today I want to dive deeper into that vision and what you see. Um, So I'm so excited to kind of dive into your book a little bit because you're a poet and your book is a collection of your poems. Tell us more about your book. Tell us more about you and uh, let's start there.
1: Well, So the book is what would be categorized as like a speculative Afrofuturist poetry. And that just means Black people imagining themselves in the future and having a vision of their lives in a future that is devoid of white supremacy and what that looks like. And actually, I would like to say that like Octavia Butler is a really important um, author to to know about and to keep sort of her presence in the space just because Octavia was one of like the first, and that we know of, I guess, black female writers who was writing science fiction. Like I think she passed away in the early nineties, but she was writing a lot. Like, I don't know if you've heard of Parable of the Sower or Wild Seed or Kindred, but they're all books that are like freakishly accurate about what's happening right now. But so I was reading a lot of her work um, before I started writing this book, I started writing this book in 2014 after Darren Wilson was not indicted for the murder of Michael Brown. I personally experienced a great deal of rage that I just had not felt ever and was really sort of hesitant to engage that rage because I thought that anger was a bad thing. I thought it was unbecoming. I thought it was nasty and gross and just like an emotion that you had to sort of always keep in check but i sort of couldn't contain that in this moment i wanted to tear everything down everything that we sort of place nationally on these high pedestals that are sort of beyond reproach and beyond cr- real critique i felt i just wanted to call all of those things down because this person's life this black person's life mattered and it was treated as if it didn't and that hurt it hurt me it hurt my feelings it hurt my people in terms of like the community that I come from, it's just painful to see over and over state violence go unchecked and in fact protected. And so I just started to write into that because I obviously couldn't go around tearing things down as one person. I <laughs> wrote the my destruction. I wrote the destruction that I wanted to see and it sort of slowly turned into a, a collection of work that didn't just sort of uh, chronicle the desire for destruction, um, but also envisioning what I want after that. And that became a really important part of the book, but also for me as a black person, we do a lot of protesting. We are always identifying things that are wrong and things that are systemically harmful and, and dangerous and toxic to black and brown folks. But to also know what we want to see on the other side of those things, right? It sort of presumes that, yes, those things will fall away. And so I think the book sort of helped me to move through my rage, to hold it, to move through it, and then to get to a different side of it where it was all about whatever I wanted to see. I could make the future as weird as I wanted it to. I can make it as creepy as I wanted. I can make it as ghosty and you know sort of spooky and sort of non-chronological as i wanted i could do whatever i wanted and and there was great joy in that and that's not a practice that i personally have really had a chance to experience especially when we're talking about like anti-racism work no one's really encouraged to imagine a future without white supremacy so why not start doing that you know
0: so you have a poem within your book America Mine that you wrote that incorporates this vision and um, you're kind enough to share that with us on this podcast. I want to encourage everybody who is listening, please buy Sasha's book. Just because you're hearing one excerpt does not mean that you're hearing her full voice and all that she has to say. So please purchase this book It's called America Comma Mine. It's on spdbooks.org. That uh, website will be in the show notes. And this is the only place that you can buy it, that spdbooks.org. It did recently sell out, but by the time that this podcast is up, hopefully uh, we will be back in stock and you can Um. purchase more and and we'll sell her out again. But uh, I really want to encourage that. Sasha, would you mind reading that, that excerpt?
1: Oh my gosh, I would love to. So um, so the poem I'm going to read is actually part of a group of sister poems in the, in the book that all have the same title, but they do different things. So this is the last one in that particular series. It's called Post-Post Collapse. Yeah, I'm happy to read it. Endings exist. Ripped curtains, shock, and chrome, and clay, and captives, and coconut oil, Patriots are vanishing or existing less and less. Aftermath. Magnolias exist, their misty breath exists and whatever bodies below them are held still, still and always. Light caught in a mirror is held. A daughter's name is held in a mouth. A daughter's hand held at a crosswalk, crosswalks exist. 808s exist, subwoofers, streets, Sidewalks and saints. Saints and sidewalks exist. Pavement, parked cars, patrols vanishing or existing less and less. Water exists and thirst on the tongue. Thirst exists and doors and demons and decisions exist too. Danger exists. Hush hush is vanishing. Fences and maps vanishing too. Little men and their little militaries are vanishing or existing less and less. You stand at the bathroom sink, brushing your teeth in the mirror when you notice the reflection of some bygone era. Walk across the floor of the hallway behind you. You turn around. She shows you her hands, muddy, vines under her nails. You face the mirror and she is gone. Hands exist, hands, hoodies, hymns, hind legs, and ha ha, ha ha exists. Victory and violins too. 808s and dancing men, full as a magnolia with the wind and its hair, exist. It's joy, and that exists too. Aftermath. Living is loud, but not the way dying is loud. On the ground, some found magic. The sound of prayers exists. Round bellies of children exist. Children exist. Aftermath. There is your mother under a streetlight calling your name after sunset, and you answer. You answer. Answering exists. Answering exists, which means the living exists, existing exists, and maybe so much death is vanishing or existing less and less.
0: That's so beautiful. Thank I'm just you. absorbing just so much. I think that there's something that could stick out for everyone within that that really just hits home and resonates. We've worked a lot together, or you know, like we've talked before, Sasha. So I know you on a personal level. I I'm wondering, you know, when you work with spirit, do you see visions in a way like does spirit work with you in a way where you're visual and you can see kind of daydreams of the future?
1: Yeah, I, I think uh, a lot of my work is actually very visual. And that's actually part of why like the, the book itself is also very visual as well. And and if anyone anyone who who burges who as a copy will will sort of know better what I'm trying to say there about that. But I've definitely realized over the years, just in sort of um leaning further into my own writing practice that my, my writing is incredibly visual. And sometimes I'll have an image in my head, but I don't know what it means yet. I don't know how to really use it. I might write it out and it's sort of a, just a sort of a random thing existing on a page and I'll be writing something. And then I just sort of fit it. It goes right into it. It sort of has all this context that I didn't know existed until I start writing more into, into it or around it, or I'll start writing something and, and I'll generate that image again. And I'll be like, Oh, that's where it came from. So yeah, a lot of the time I think the images comes, come before the words, you know,
0: couple of things there. When that image resurfaces again, like you have it, right? You you all know that energy of like you have this vision in your mind and then a new thought comes in. So that vision is no longer there. And then, you know, it it might be five minutes later, it might be two days later, that vision comes back. Mm -hmm. And that's what it's like when you're working with spirit. If you've ever heard somebody say, I, I asked spirit three times if that's really what they want to say, and they brought it back to me three times, that's exactly what it is. And yeah. I think people just don't understand how much spirit works with us because everybody is a healer in their own unique way. Uh, you're a healer in your writing and your teaching, and spirit is I just want you to know, continuing to bring that back and back and back for you, talk us through what you see and what you see within that imagery within your mind, looking at this future where there is no white supremacy anymore.
1: I think one of the things that I sort of turned over a lot in writing the book was how do we, how do all of us really begin to ground our identities without white supremacy. So much of everyone's identity is hinged on the, that existence of white supremacy or the supposition of white supremacy, which means that no matter who you are, if you are not a white person, you're constantly having to live your life and navigate things along structures that were built to support white supremacy. So when we're imagining a future without that, It's sort of hard to do, right? Never, like I've said earlier, we've never really been invited to think about that because then that would that would imply that something is wrong or unhealthy or unsustainable about the ways that we live now, or I guess that we used to live. Because I really, I really feel and believe that like a lot of what's happening is a really big um, shift uh, away from that. It's really, it feels really sharp. But I will say that I think this time where we're all sort of home and we're all sort of Have more time than we've ever really had, we are being given a really wonderful opportunity to think about and devise and the things that we want to see instead. And so, in my vision for a post white supremacist world, really, because I mean, the world sort of, if we're going to talk about colonialism, like that's something that's sort of globalized, right? But I think it's really being able to make personal decisions for yourself that. Come from a that don't come from a place of sort of already the supposition that something's already stacked against you, and how can you like work around that, or the understanding of like why you can't do a thing, or your safety, or the your your access to to uh, health, or the, the resources that you need to be healthy. It's being able to be liberated, just on a on a humane level the things that you need to survive as a human, being confident in the access to those things so that nobody's trying to make sure that you purposely don't have access to those things or that your access to those things is not really at a quality level um, so that you're really getting what you need so that people are imagining their liberation just at the beginning of just waking up in the morning in a safe space waking up in an environment that is healthy, waking up in an environment that is not toxic to you in some way or an an environment that's investing in your um, illness or your death or your unwellness or your instability or precarity in any way, starting there on a fundamental level. I mean, and, and honestly, I really do feel like it's not just a vision. I think some people are doing that work already. I call it, I personally have called it like future work in like workshops that I've uh, taught or been a part of, we call that like future work where people are like, okay, so we're going to just work on this. We're going to, and, and those things are often seen as radical, but I think that they're futurial. really. They're not, I mean, I think they're radical in, in the context of like living in a capitalist society or living in a, a, a white supremacist society. And then I guess that would be radical, but really it's, I feel that it's really like a glimpses of the future where there's lawyers who only work with trans folks of color, people who are doing all sorts of, th- to make sure that like people who deal with mental health issues have free access to the resources that they need to be well, or to, to, p- to speak with people that they need to speak with or work through things that they need to work through to have access to things that they need. So I think even, even those things are futurial work. I think sometimes it's easy to assume that if we're talking about the future, we're talking about like the Jetsons, spaceships, free everything, free, free, free. But a lot of the time, if we're thinking about what white supremacy has taken from people other than like lives, we're also talking about access to uh, a healthy life and sanity and uh, just wellness on a cellular daily sort of level. So I think anything that helps to provide that, anything that moves closer in that direction Is futurial is working toward a a post-white supremacist vision, and I think that's the sort of imagining that we need to try to work on on doing. I'm not an expert at it. I wrote a book, you sort of like as a practice, (laughs) but I think that generally, it's something that is is something that we all should be practicing. And when we see people proposing policies that we think might be a little too drastic or a little too, whatever. I think thinking through a future lens it's what is what's really going to help us to embrace those ideas and work within those to make those a reality so that they're not things that we're constantly aspiring to or, or that sort of remain like a, in a dream state, like, oh, wouldn't that be nice? But it's like, well, no, we could have it. Here are some things that we would need to do differently. Here's ways that people would need to think differently. Here's what work people would need to do to understand things so that we don't perpetuate those things. Or bring things back that we never wanted that are toxic to us, you know, because all the other reality too is that a lot of things are internalized, you know, so it's sort of undoing some of those things as well.
0: Going, go into that more. Explain what you mean. I think I know, but explain more about that internalization that we do. Mm-hmm. I think that
1: because uh, we grow, we're, we're sort of born into these things, into these systems, So they become a part of the ways that we expect the world to work or that we expect the world to move around us. And we expect other people to navigate the world in certain ways. And we internalize those things. We become our own. We we internalize all sorts of all sorts of institutions. Right. Like racism can be internalized. Misogyny can be internalized. All those things can be internalized where it's not just the outside forces all the time. It's how the outside forces become inside inside forces so that they don't have to be in the room with us to make things happen. Sometimes we can bring it into the room ourselves by our own decisions or our own perceptions or our own understandings or our own presumptions.
0: Go deeper. Give an example. So I think, for example,
1: I mean, I think uh, racism can also be internalized for example like when we're talking about the white gaze with the white gaze just being like white people looking at people of color or black people right that's the white gaze the white gaze is something through which it's a gaze that looks at the that looks at something and calls it the other and then judges the other right so if somebody has internalized the white gaze that means that that's not a white person That means that it's a black person who has internalized the white gaze so that white supremacy doesn't need to be in the room. There doesn't need to be another white person in the room to tell that person that maybe they're ugly or their hair is too big or loud or frizzy or, you know, that their body type is inappropriate or their whatever is wrong with them. They've internalized the white gaze so that they can look at themselves and tell themselves. So this thing, does that make sense?
0: Yes, and I'm really sensitive to not wanting to do this thing where white people center around themselves, but I think it is helpful sometimes. I found it helpful in the past in therapy of just understanding it from your own point of view and your own experiences. And the spirit is taking me back as you were saying that to this very vivid memory of being in a line at like Starbucks When my daughter was down at Children's Hospital in Chicago, I mean, we were basically there off and on for six months straight. And we learned to just live, you know, round the clock keeping on top of things, if you have never had a child in the hospital for a long period of time, you learn very quickly that doctors are amazing. While medicine has come so far, if you're not in the room all the time on top of what's going on, You're not able to help piece things together for the doctors to help the nurses to stay on top of what's going on because you don't want there to be missed medication or missed this or missed that. So I got to a point where when we were in the hospital, I mean, I would shower once every seven days for 10 minutes because I wasn't able Mm -hmm. to be away from my kid. Or I would run down to Starbucks or I would run down maybe three times a day, but then I was sleeping next to her in the beeping machines. And I remember okay. looking around and for the first time in my life, seeing life in general through a different filter that mm-hmm. there are some parents that I was talking to at the time who this was their life for eighteen years, that their child maybe never left the home, and this was their life all their life and Um, I'm talking about Starbucks, too, because I remember being at the Starbucks and being completely disheveled, right? Like, no makeup on. (laughs) like I haven't taken a shower for seven days. I know I smell. But I am holding on to my sanity by a thread. And I am holding on to my life by a thread. And I am just trying to keep my daughter alive. And I am fighting. And don't you fucking give me that look that I don't look put together because you'd have no clue what I'm going through at this point in my life. And there's something to that about actually, I remember going in and asking people to donate, you know, like donate to this cause, like donate to kids who have special needs. And, and my mom pulling me aside and being like, but they don't understand, you know, like they don't understand what it's like to have a kid who's so sick. They don't understand what it's like to be fully exhausted because you're doing this around the clock. And I'm not trying to center. I'm trying to bring it back to taking that experience and feeling that and feeling like, what would it be like to be a person of color who every time a white person looks at me, I feel that, you know? And what if every single time I go into a store, there's people following me around and I can't just spend 30 minutes or an hour tinkering around in Target. I have to get in and get out. Those are things that I have not experienced and those are things that I have not looked at through the lens of my life and I'm looking at for the first time. The more and more and more I feel like I understand these intricate examples of what your experience has been, the more I can go, okay, I get that. You know, like, Like, let's pull back another layer. Let's go deeper. Let's go deeper. I want to know what makes you uncomfortable in all of the examples. But I get at the same time where the Black community has said, we're exhausted. We're not responsible for educating you. Go out and educate yourself. So I have found women who are producing courses to help us go deeper. And that's what I'm paying to do. To do this work, to understand,
1: mm-hmm. and I think you know also that's the sort of insidious thing about racism is that it sort of can can metamorphose into a lot of different shapes, right? And so it's it's really important to understand that too in in educating yourself, whoever you are, right, is understanding that racism as a mechanism, as a structure as an institution, well, the institutionalizing of of racism is a shape shift, right? Because it used to be more, whatever, more overt, more obvious, but it it still exists that way. And it exists in other ways. It's sort of a sleight of hand. And so the sort of insidious thing about it is well, when we're talking about like internalized racism, that's sort of one of the most insidious forms of of racism is that, there doesn't have to be a white, pe- a white person looking at me or looking at a, a black girl looking in the mirror, whoever, whoever that black person is, for that person to have some internalized racism that tells them to alter their appearance in some way or to speak differently or to carry themselves differently at work than they do at home or to code switch or to do any of those, those things that's going to make them more acceptable to some unseen white gaze whether that's internal, external, or whatever, that you feel is sort of always really looking at you. You know what I mean? It becomes like the barometer for what's normal. It becomes a barometer for what's acceptable, it becomes a barometer for what's professional. It becomes a barometer for what's beautiful. And I think, you know, in doing any kind of anti-racist work, it's really understanding that racism is just a really slippery, little thing, you know, that has become many things in order to thrive as long as it has. And it's racism is constantly investing in itself. It invests, it's all about investments. You know, I think that's how white supremacy has been able to thrive as long as it has. And so it's like, you know, when you we look at like in the 80s putting drugs in black neighborhoods, you know, that was an investment in white supremacy. Um, That was for the long you know, the long term, the results weren't as necessarily immediate, even though there were immediate uh, results of that, but to make sure that like Black communities continued to struggle and continue to not have access to things, and you put sort of disarray into Black neighborhoods by putting drugs into Black neighborhoods, right? then that ensures that 10 years from now, white supremacy can still thrive because all these communities have sort of been disenfranchised that way or harmed in that way or, or sort of had toxicity injected right into, into them. So it's another way that racism can sort of, you know, do a lot of uh, little little flips and tricks to sort of make itself a little less Identifiable, but to the people who experience it, we always know where it is and what it is and what it's doing and how it's working, you know.
0: Well, and I think that that's the hard thing too, because like what you're saying is even as a history major, something that I'm hearing for the first time, right? That I never knew that drugs were planted in Black communities, you know, and intended for that effort. And I think you know, taking a 12 week course, like I'm going to start in a couple of weeks here is great, but this is a lifelong learning position to be in because of all of this is, it's so deep seated. I mean, all of these things that maybe, you know, so easily, I'm just learning by beginning to learn the alphabet. It feels like, well,
1: you know, you know the, the sort of funny thing is that they're not things that I even know easily. They're things that I didn't even know until I was out of college. There are things that I was not educated about in any sort of, you know, history class because that's bad press, right? Like that's that's not good press for, for my American history class to sort of paint America as the sort of engine that sort of is uh, looking to produce a certain thing. And so sort of making sure that it filters out or ex- or uh, exterminates anything that's not that, right? And so there are a lot of things that, I, that weren't common knowledge to me. I didn't know what, if you'd asked me, 10 years ago, what the Tulsa riots were, or the Tulsa massacre, massacre was, I wouldn't have known what that was. Or if you're talking about what even the African diaspora is, I didn't know what that word was until like 2013. You know what I mean? So there's so many things that have not easily been taught to me. There are things that I had to actually go out and teach myself, even as somebody with a master's degree. They're not things that I learned in school. There's so much sort of re-educating for my own self about my own experience that has sort of been taken from me and people, other people who may not be black, who also need to understand those things so that it creates more context so that when things happen or people are rioting in the street and people don't go, well, why do they have to just burn everything down? And that's not going to fix anything. And what, what I don't understand. But if you, if you knew the actual history, you know that this is this is not, this didn't happen overnight. This is 400 plus years of, you know, institutionalized racism. Yeah.
0: Definitely. I want to go back to when I said that piece about myself in the hospital, can you talk about more about like centering? Because I haven't started this class, just FYI for everybody listening. I'm registered. It's going to start in a couple of weeks here. But I want to talk more about centering. If we talk about our own experiences in a way where like it's just helping us to understand what people are of color are going to, and we bring it full circle back around to that. Is that still centering? I think that I understand the desire to want to
1: put yourself in the other person's shoes, right? Mm-hmm. I think what the sort of even other thing that needs to happen that I gets I think uncomfortable for people when they realize that that's what they actually need to be doing is understanding where in their lives, they have perpetuated racism and been racist, whether they realized they were doing that, or they didn't realize they were doing it, or they saw somebody else doing it and didn't do something about it, or they saw something happen and didn't maybe understand why that's inappropriate, why that's harmful. Because the thing that I've told uh, a friend of mine who works at uh, SMU, Southern Methodist University, she is a white woman who is working with black students uh, in her department to change a lot of things on campus at SMU in Dallas. And uh, one of the things that her and I have talked about a lot is understanding that professors need to understand that you've already said the racist thing. You've already done the racist thing. And that's the point of trying to understand, trying to understand from there, because I do think that if you are trying to put yourself in the other person's shoes, you can't. And that's how racism works. That's just the nature of racism is that you're, you can't and you're never going to having something happen to you because of the color of your skin, where everything else, everything else that happens to people that are being discriminated against or whatever, that's discrimination, but it sometimes people aren't sure what the distinction is between discrimination and racism where racism is institutionalized discrimination of people based on their black skin and discrimination could be many things. It could be because you're a woman. It could be because you're gay. It could be because you're trans or you're queer or whatever it is. Right. Um, So there's all sorts of discrimination that can happen. Racism is a whole system of discrimination against a group of people, one group of people. And so when we're looking at, asking people to sort of do that anti-racist work and trying to have a better understanding. The understanding has to come from the fact that, well, I've probably already done it. And so let me understand the history of the thing that I said and why that's wrong or the history of the thing that I did or the institution I work for or whatever it is, right. To really get that, that that's, I think that is the most healthy place to come from because centering I understand the inclination to do that because you want to understand. And that's coming from a, I think that's a natural sort of place to understand. It's just that racism makes it hard to do that because it's designed by white people against black people. Yeah.
0: Thank you for explaining that. Yeah. So if somebody doesn't have the money to take a course, where Mm -hmm. is a good starting point for them? I think
1: there, there are so many books and films and articles. I would say like, start with, you know, trying to educate yourself on black female authors. And I say black female authors specifically because, and I'm saying not just writers like myself who write like poetic literature. I'm talking about people who write academic literature, essays, whatever. Um, I say black women Author specifically, because Black women are at a very specific intersection of being female and Black, which is just a sort of impossible intersection full of issues. So I, I say that that's a vantage point that's going to point out things that you're just never going to understand. And I say that to a you that is a general you that is not Black or female, or not Black and female, I should say. So I would say that looking for the experiences, the essays, the, the pedagogy of black female authors is a wonderful place to start black female filmmakers, because again, that's a, that's a more whole vantage point that, you know, you, you might not get elsewhere. So I think there's there's so many films like i could probably rattle off to you that people have probably already heard of like you know people are, I've recommend I've heard seen people recommend like Thirteenth Watch Thirteenth Line about the Thirteenth Amendment um, or like uh, you know reading reading all sorts of things I mean there's a wonderful activists from you know the 50s and the 60s who've been saying a lot of the things that a lot of activists of now are just sort of repeating or adding onto or sort of look, stepping back and saying well, that's problematic, but here's how we can sort of uh, adjust that for a more futurial sort of time, right? So I think that also is really important in whatever sort of work that you're doing, but for yourself, you know, doing anti-racist work for yourself. But I think that, yeah, I would say your best bet is to start off with the written works and lived experiences of Black women who have taken the time to write those things, Um, because even there's articles that I'm seeing out, uh, recently that I'm like, but June Jordan wrote that, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, or Angela Davis said that in a speech, you know, like in 1967 or whatever. Uh, so I, so, you know, I think that those are, those are great places to start. They're excellent resources because they're experts on it.
0: I didn't realize that that's even out there too, of just, and that's so ignorant to say, I'm so Sorry. Just all of the experiences, because that's what I'm wanting to soak up right now is tell me, like, show me through your sight and your eyes what you have experienced.
1: No, that's absolutely correct. And, you know, I think that it's important because these aren't people who are just writing about their lived experiences. They're also, they're also writing about their lived experiences and then also asking for they're also talking about what they've observed and, and how those things can be different too, mm-hmm. you know, or if they're not talking just about lived experience, they're talking about their, their pedagogy or their assessments of what is happening and how those things can be changed can, is, is coming from that lived experience. If, even if we don't have an account after account after account, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and sometimes that's, that's even more important is that sort of trust in that person as an expert on the thing, because we know that all of those things are coming from somewhere and having a lived up close experience from Black women and also Black queer women who've, you know, over, over time throughout history have written all sorts of things, ha- had sorts all sorts of books. I mean, people talk about the work of Audre Lorde all the time, Audre Lorde. June Jordan Octavia Butler who wrote uh, science fiction I mean I could go on Angela Davis um, who is still alive I mean who does who has done a few frequent talks actually in last uh, over quarantine I've actually watched a lot of I personally have watched a lot of her uh, lectures because uh, she she's been talking a lot about how we have an opportunity now that they didn't have uh, her you know being part of the the civil rights movement of the uh, or the Black Power movement, I should say, of the seventies. She has had lots of talks, you know, talking specifically to young Black people and, and other uh, folks of color who are about Black liberation, talking about how this moment is very unique and how we can capitalize on that and use it to to the best of of our benefit to have the, this this post white supremacist future that we're all envisioning together.
0: I love that. I'm wondering if you can, you have such a beautiful way of envisioning and seeing. I'm just wondering if you could leave and paint that picture with our audience of what that future looks like to you. Hmm. What do you see? You know, I see, I feel like
1: what I see is just joy and peace within the souls of Black people to be who to be who you are to be unafraid to do anything to be sort of care to be careless to to not have to wake up and worry or wake up and fix something change something think twice about anything just to just black people being black in all the myriad ways that that looks because Black is not monolithic at all. There's so many, Blackness is so big and vast. Blackness is so many things and it's so beautiful. It's so vast that as a Black person, there are there are aspects of Black culture that I don't even know about. And being able to feel connected to those things in a way that feels as broad as Blackness itself. That's what I imagine, is being able to access those things freely, being able to indulge in our culture with no cares about what anybody thinks about, what that looks like, sounds like, how loud it is, whatever. I think there are, I personally know a lot of Black people who that's how they live every day. They've just decided on their freedom and they're not waiting for anyone because if they wait, they're not. they're never going to see it. Right. Um, And I think that's just the most delicious way to, to live. I think that's beautiful.
0: You are such an amazing person, such an amazing soul, such an amazing speaker, visionary, author, teacher. Sasha, I'm so excited because I feel like you, and we've talked about this before, but I feel like you're going to be teaching a lot in the future. As soon as you have that, or do you have that online course already?
1: I haven't publicized it yet, but it will be, I'll I'll be talking more about that in the next few weeks or so because I'm sort of getting it ready to sort of re-announce that soon. So yeah.
0: Are you able to talk about it if this is going to go on in two weeks? Do you want to talk about that now to promote it?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I'll I'll be teaching a writing class for Black writers and also writers of color to write into the concept of subversion and subverting power structures, which is a lot of what my book does. Um, And so it's just giving other people an opportunity to sort of write into destruction or writing into the future and positioning themselves into the future by subverting those power structures and sort of just having a lot of fun and playing around with those and, and sort of building, building worlds, building futures, um, looking at imagery, playing with images, listening to, 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 different version, three different versions of, you know, songs and understanding like why they're different and and those little things and tweaking those dynamics and sort of playing around with futurial work in a creative, creative sort of way.
0: That's so fun. For people who are interested in taking this course, where can they find more information? So they can
1: go to my Instagram because that's where I'll be (laughs) announcing that. Uh, my Instagram is King underscore underscore Sasha. So that's King Sasha with two underscores in between. And also I'll probably put it up on my personal website, which is thesashabanks.com. So that's T-H-E Sasha, S-A-S-H-A, Banks, Banks, dot com.
0: That's fantastic. You know, I have one more question for you. On the the book cover, your title, America, is all in lowercase comma, and then mine is all in uppercase. And as somebody who is formerly in marketing and fundraising and branding, I know that's intentional. Talk <laughs> us through that.
1: Yeah, I wanted to, uh, what people will find um, if they purchase the book, uh, across the book is me taking a lot of opportunities to sort of give America the sort of historical treatment that it's given in Black history, which is to sort of undermine a lot of things, or obscure things, or report things incorrectly, or uh, mispronounce people's names, or whatever. I do a lot of play with that. So the title and the way that it appears um, is definitely sort of just a continuation of that, a nod to those sort of little moments of being able to undermine the thing, but also to remind people that America is, is a, is a, is a place. It's an experiment. It's not something that is so high up on a pedestal that we can't critique it. It deserves our critique. It deserves our um, critical thinking about why it's not sustainable. And I think that if we can remember that, the structure doesn't become the people so that we can actually maneuver things, change things or get rid of things altogether if that's what we decide we need to do.
0: That's so beautiful. Sasha Banks, everyone. Sasha, thank you so much for being on the show. For everybody listening, hop on, buy the book. The website is spdbooks.org, spdbooks.org. You can search Sasha Banks or America Mine and purchase it there. Yay! Yes. Yay! Woo-hoo. <laughs> awesome. Sasha, thank you so much for being on the show. Open invitation anytime you want to come on, okay? Thank you so much,
1: Julie, for having me.
0: Friends, if you'd like to hear from your angels and loved ones on the other side, book a one-on-one session via phone, FaceTime, or Zoom. You can also work with me one-on-one when you register to take the Angel Reiki School online to develop and use your own unique spiritual gifts. If you're just looking to be able to connect with your own personal angels, the Angel Communication online course will teach you how to hear, feel, and connect with your personal angels more clearly. Friends, if you get benefit from this podcast, please subscribe, rate us five stars, and ask a friend to listen. Don't forget to look in the show notes to see the winner of this month's free drawing. You're entered into the drawing when you write a five-star positive review and email it over to us so that we know how to contact you when you win. Now, if you have time, I want you to pause and do some energy work with me for a moment to lighten, clear, and reset your own energy. To start, I want you to take two deep breaths. Deep breath in. Deep breath out. Deep breath in. Deep breath out. Friends, as I walk you through this, I want you to use your imagination as an energy tool. Friends, your imagination isn't something that's not real. Your imagination is what every human being uses to create physical reality. How does a painter know what to paint? How does a sculptor know what to sculpt? How does a writer know what to write? They see it all within their mind, within the imagination, before it flows through them and is created within physical reality. Friends, I want you to start by seeing yourself surrounded by thousands of angels. These are all angels that work directly for God and they circle around you. They have this light, airy, warm, yummy presence to them. And my friends, they are simply pure love and they radiate their love from their being to yours. I want you to take a moment to just breathe deeply in and out as you see and feel the presence of all of these angels surrounding you, sending their love and light energy to you. Friends, next, I want you to see yourself surrounded by your loved ones on the other side. Your angels haven't gone anywhere, they're still right there, but now steps in your loved ones on the other side. Greet them, welcome them, take a moment within your imagination to give them the biggest hug and kiss. Friends, as we do this healing work together, I want you to see that every single being that is surrounding you is just surrounding you because they are connected to God and they want to help you as a soul here on earth to lift your energy, to make it lighter, to take any heaviness out of your aura, chakras, and body. In order for them to help you with this, what I want you to do is voice to them, see yourself in your imagination, telling your angels, your loved ones on the other side, God energy of course is there too. Tell them what you are afraid of. I want you to be specific and explain your fears to them now. now friends, I want you to see your loved ones and angels on the other side comforting you, holding you, wiping away your tears. I want you to see them telling you that you're going to be okay. Your family is going to be okay. I want you to see them showing you in their way from the other side that they are there helping you every step of the way and that they will never, ever leave your side. Friends, I want you to see or feel God energy, this pure white radiant light pouring down from above over you. And as you feel this pure love and light, this gentle waterfall just pouring over your head, filling your body, filling your auric field to the outside of you, filling every inch of your being around you. I want you to feel that as this light energy comes in, the highest vibration that is as it gently pours into your being, I want you to feel how all the heaviness within you just releases. With the snap of your finger... God takes every ounce of heavy, low vibrational energy within you, and with that snap of the finger, God turns all of it into the highest vibration, love, light, energy. Friends, I want you to imagine within your imagination your DNA strand. Now the way that spirit shows me the DNA and what it looks like is if you could imagine that double helix and that within that double helix are millions or billions of doors and windows. And those doors and windows open and close. And as they do, some serve your highest health and good Some do not. What I want you to do is say this prayer with me. My friends, this energy work does not have to take a lot of time. You're going to hear me say, use the snap of your fingers. Because within that snap of the fingers, your intention shifts the energy within your body. So you can say it, but please believe it. Know like you know like you know within your heart that you are Changing the energy, the frequency within you to be pure, complete health. So say this little prayer with me now. God, please close all the doors and windows to my DNA that don't serve my highest health. With a snap of your fingers, see those doors and windows close. And God, please open all the doors and windows to my DNA that do serve my highest health. See those doors and windows open with the snap of your fingers. What I want you to do now is see yourself healthier than ever come September of this year. Daydream, visualize about what that health looks like and feels like to you within your body come September of this year. Take a moment to do this work right now and I'll come back to you with my voice in one minute. Friends, I want you to believe like you believe like you believe that you, your family, your friends, you are protected. You are safe. You are secure. Your angels are looking out for you. God is looking out for you. Your loved ones are looking out for you. See yourself as healthier than ever come September of this year. Now I want you to pray with me for a moment for everyone else. God, God. Please protect our nurses, doctors, and all healthcare professionals around the world. God, may you give each of them strength and protect them. God, please also protect all people who work in grocery stores, food service, or delivery. God, may you give each of them the strength and protection that they need. For all people who are suffering from COVID-19 themselves, God, may you take care of them and heal all who are able to be healed. Surround them with your divine protection. Surround them with angels. And help every cell within their body to become completely 100% healthy again. God, for every person who has lost a job or had their income reduced, please clearly show them the path to healing, safety, security, Whisper to them in their hearts the direction that you would have them go. God, for every child on this planet, please help them to receive the attention, love, nurturing, and care that they so desperately need. God, please surround them with angels and allow them to feel the divine presence of your love and warmth. For those filled with hatred, God, We ask you to transmute that hate within their hearts into love energy. And we ask you to open up their hearts to make shifts and positive changes. To help them raise their vibration. And everyone who is helping with the COVID-19 effort or response in some way, God, please be with each person who needs your strength. Clearly guide them and protect them with whatever they need at this time. Friends, finally, I want you to visualize Thanksgiving of this year. I want you to take a moment of silence to experience this daydream within your mind. See every single family member and friend and loved one there at the dinner table. See them happy, healthy. Feel the gratitude of this Thanksgiving beyond any other Thanksgiving in the past. Gratitude for being all together, gratitude for all being healthy. Gratitude for the lessons learned. Gratitude for the relationships that grew deeper and the love that is between you all. Again, my friends, see your spirit team on the other side telling you that you are going to be okay. See them helping you. My friends, God loves you. Your spirit team loves you. I love you. Open up your heart like French doors to all of the unexpected blessings that they're trying to bring into your life right now. May you go forth with your day feeling lighter and living in the high vibration that is God. Go forth in your day surrounded by angels and your spirit team on the other side protecting you. Allow yourself to just be. Allow yourself to live in the high vibrational frequency that is God and carry it with you throughout your day. Friends, I have to have a disclaimer at the end. This podcast is to educate, inspire, and entertain you on your personal journey towards health and happiness. It is not intended to replace care best provided by qualified professionals, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.